0: Hello my loves, Jazza here, before we dive into this episode, just want to thank Jennifer and Toby for supporting us on the highest possible tier, on Patreon, our rainbow parents, you're both really rather awesome, thank you so much for for trusting us with your money, if you want to join them, try to go check our Patreon, okay here's the episode. Welcome to the queer movie podcast celebrating the best and worst in lgbtq plus cinema and now music because we're still trying to navigate the sag after wga strikes one glorious genre at a time
1: i'm rowan ellis
0: and i'm jazza john and welcome to one of our guest episodes which is usually called movies that made me queer but this time is music because we don't want to be scabs
1: Today we are joined by a very special guest, two very special guests. One, Jazza, because normally they're not in these episodes, and two, another guest, a stranger to the podcast but a friend who will instead be answering the question, "What music made you queer?"
0: I'm very excited to welcome Taylor Benke, also known as It's Reddish Time and Goth Croissant on YouTube. You've got all oh, the hello. usernames. Wow. Yay. Yeah. Yay. Yeah, um, how are you? How are you doing today, Taylor?
2: I'm lovely. I'm so excited to look at both of your faces. And to talk about... Sorry, listeners, you don't get that pleasure.
1: Yeah, you don't We're not a video podcast. You can just hear our voices. So Taylor, tell us a little bit and those listening at home about yourself. Hi, so
2: I am Taylor Benke. I am a writer, music journalist, and video creator, and also noted bisexual. So in these episodes, we
1: use queer as a bit of an umbrella term. Music made me queer, but what words other words do you use taylor what are we answering is it the music that made me redacted what is the (laughs) what are we how are we filling this in
2: yeah i think i interchangeably use queer and bisexual to describe my identities stunning
1: so the way that this works essentially for anyone who hasn't listened before is we just have a nice little chat and the guest says some stuff that made them queer sometimes it's funny sometimes it's emotional Sometimes it's like, oh my goodness, what a universal queer experience. Sometimes it's like, you are very strange guest because you're the only person who's ever fancied that character in the history of the world.
0: Sometimes people just talk about the animated Robin Hood.
1: Sometimes. 50% of the the time time. people talk about Robin Hood animated Robin Hood. Also
0: Elizabeth Swan, like constantly, always comes up here.
1: No no one has ever had a unique thought in their entire lives. I'm so aware of the fact that because we're doing music this episode, this is basically like Desert Island Discs. Yes,
0: I was thinking this as well.
1: I don't know whether it is made out of the UK, but it's a very, very iconic, very long running radio program where the format of the interview with celebrity guests is you are going to a desert island and you can bring like five songs. And then at the end, they have to pick like the one song they'd actually be able to bring and like a a book and stuff like that. But it's very, very famous. But it's like that cross with that Tumblr post from so long ago about there being a gay island. Did anyone else? It's like, it started off being an insult where people back in the days of like debating about gay marriage, all of the Republicans would be like, if you put gay people on an island, the world would die off. I was going to say, back in the day, that's something that I
2: feel like recently a legislator said in like the past year in the US.
1: Very (laughs) sad. But then Tumblr obviously got hold of it and was like, I'd love to live on a gay island. So now it's like, what would you take to your gay desert island? What are the songs? For some reason, this feels like it was started when you only had cassettes, so you could only really bring five songs with you. Nowadays, you would be able to bring more, but you know what? We only have a cassette to, yes. what, to bring your songs in on.
2: What one playlist do you want the Spotify user interface to show you because it's going to make you dig for everything else?
1: Yeah, and and <laughs> you can't log into an account, so you only get five songs before it starts to just play ads for you. Those are the This is the, the false reality we've created. So, Taylor, you... Feel free to do this in any order you wish. Some people do it chronologically in terms of the earliest to the most recent. Some people go least chaotic to most
2: chaotic. However you wish, what is the first song you've bought for us? Okay, so I think one of the first songs that sort of foreshadowed perhaps my queerness was Sugar We're Going Down by Fall Out Boy. I went to a Christian summer camp the summer before my freshman year of high school. And there were some emo kids there that played me that song. And I was like, all right, this is my identity now. This is my whole personality. But I think that sort of the genre of emo pop punk of the early 2010s was sort of this like safe cover for a lot of us to experiment with our gender expression, with our sexuality in a way that we could sort of hold it at arm's length and be like yeah we're just doing this because
0: of the scene just doing it because it's cool
2: yeah yeah i just you know my my guy friends would wear eyeliner and women's pants because it was you know what the what the cool rock stars did not because they had any feelings about any of that but sugar we're going down has i think a feature that is really common in a lot of sort of like pop punk songs where there's a scene where the singer is looking at a couple and thinking god i wish i was you unspecified pronoun and i think that's a an incredibly bisexual experience the line in sugar we're going down is watching you two from the closet wishing to be the friction in your jeans which is now kind of looking back on it very disturbing and creepy but like
0: it's very bohemian hey, hasn't you never know that could have been a consensual cock relationship
1: <laughs> it's also very bisexual, yeah. It's because it's you yeah. it's it's watching you two as opposed to like watching you a right. single person who I definitely am straight for.
2: Right. I just I'm I'm looking at both of you, attractive people, and who knows which one I wanna be. Maybe I just wanna be smack in the middle. Mm. And I think that it is not surprising now, as there's sort of this emo pop punk renaissance going on that a lot of these artists have since sort of said, you know, I'm hand-wavy about my sexuality, or, you know, I don't believe in a label, but, you know, my gender is complicated. That a lot of them now are broadening their expression. I think that's very common for, like, myself, my friend group, a lot of people I grew up with, is we were all like, yeah, we're just weird because we like different music than other people. No other reason. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't,
0: I, th- I, th- I see a lot of parallels with the way that queerness is kind of like being becoming more and more kind of like I don't want to say mainstream but common among especially kind of like artists who are probably a little bit younger than us it feels so similar Mm -hmm. in terms of just general vibes to what it was like in the early 2000s when there was kind of I don't think I certainly didn't have any of the language to be able to talk about like gender expression identity or even sexuality really But it was just kind of like a space to be able to experiment with those things. And because we Mm -hmm. hadn't been raised by TikTok and Section 28 had only just been lifted, we didn't have any idea how to kind of like describe what we were kind of like doing and just kind of like existing and experimenting, making out with one another and all of those kinds of things. Guys wearing skirts, the guy liner thing, the guy liner. Oh, my God yes guy liner and man bags i think like david beckham was so wrong once and everybody lost their shit i think
1: as well it's the fact that it's a genre in which both like teenage boys and teenage girls could find like gender fuckery in a way Mm -hmm. where it wasn't just like oh all of the boys can wear their eyeliner and their like women's pants it was also girls who were allowed to be like grungier and have these male idols that they could dress Mm -hmm. like and have like a connection to that I think was particularly interesting and then obviously anyone who didn't necessarily identify with those two genders particularly could mess around with with any of those elements and I think that that feels again like one of those potentially like not necessarily entirely unique but like special things around that genre that it was I think there's probably been subcultures and genres that have done things specifically pushing the expansion of expression of one particular gender but i think that that like gender expansiveness across the board was has always been really interesting from those kind of subcultures did you i mean as well like did you feel like at that time it was a it was something that you were conscious of that this was something that you were thinking about while you were listening to these songs and while you were looking at these different fashions taylor or was it like
2: Years later, you look back and went, uh-oh, whoopsie. Oh, yes, it's it's a lot of, like, rear view mirror. Oh, that was gay. <laughs> I mean, there was, as you were saying, there was a lot of sort of room for gender fuckery in, in in many directions. I remember getting, like, a really short haircut that was, like, very sort of choppy and classically emo. And once I got it, I, would, I used to go to this, like, all-ages venue in my town. And I would go there with my friend and we'd be, like, trying to, like, scope out cute guys. And I would get like approached by women. And I was like, why does this keep happening to me? It's because I, (laughs) it's because of a haircut. But, you know, a lot of us had it at the time. But I think that, you know, it was, it was maybe too good a cover and that I could convince myself that I was experimenting with all of these forms of expression and identifying with these lyrics just because I liked the music and not because I was feeling anything deeper. It may, I feel like, have even sort of extended the timeline for me to figure things out because I was just like, "This is just the scene. This isn't anything else." And also, I think it's important to note that even though there was this sort of space for all this experimentation, the scene was still like really misogynistic and like really homophobic. It I, it was sort of like there was this like wink and like no homo about it all. A lot of these lyrics were like, "Yes." yearning for women which i was just like no one's ever put this in a song before (laughs) but it was also really violent and like you know there are a lot of songs about i hope you you crash your car and die because you didn't look at me so it wasn't are you are you a lyricist taylor that was beautiful
1: (laughs) that was stunning
2: i'm gonna leave this town behind yeah but i i i think that i didn't quite become conscious of it Because there was still this overtone of like, you know, but it's not gay, though, because it was still so taboo in the early 2000s. So I sort of think it was like it's it's foreshadowing. It wasn't a realization at that time. But looking back at all of it, I was like, I understand now why I was attracted to this.
0: How much of this was also like the the uh, the visuals of these art forms that went out like not just like the fashion and stuff like that but i'm thinking like the music videos and things because i was i was having a click around and i was watching the video for this i don't know if you've watched Mm -hmm. it recently if you remember it but it it hey i i think it could be read as a queer allegory it's very like star-crossed lovers there's a guy with horns who falls Mm -hmm. in love with a girl who doesn't have horns and then her dad tries to put an arrow between his eyes And then they, he gets hit by a car or something and they run off into the night. So at some point in the video, the guy with the horns tries to like cut off his horns, to try and be different. Like, I feel like there's a lot of that echoing of, I think probably not deliberate considering the time, but a load of stuff that I think (laughs) would speak to, to queer kids or any kid who is feeling out of place in kind of like the place that they're growing up, right?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of the visual style of both the song and kind of the whole genre, a lot of the lyrics are all pointing at this. Nobody understands me. I'm different. I don't fit in. I don't belong here. In a really unspecified way, in a way that I think that like plenty of, you know, teens feel whether they're queer or not. But I think that it was perhaps there was a reason that it was speaking so deeply to me at the time. But because it's all symbolic, right? We had Haley Kiyoko on this list and and we're not gonna get all the way through it. But like the girls like girls music video is literally this, but instead of a guy with like antlers, it's just they're girls in love, you know it's like <laughs> they're no like where is yeah. the
0: antler representation that we had in the early right. 2000s really steps backwards,
2: yeah, it's just like uh, it, it's all metaphor, but I think you know as as we move through time and it becomes more acceptable to be open about identities it's just it's just a little bit more out there on the page
0: this how often do you still listen to this track and what does it mean Uh, to you now
2: so i i feel like there was a long period where i didn't listen to it and then in 2020 i just like regressed really hard into all the music i loved in high school um and started listening to it a lot this is i haven't been to karaoke in a long time but this is one of my karaoke songs um, because Amazing. it's just one of those like, oh yeah remember that? I love that. Like crowd pleasers.
0: But that yeah. is Numb by Linkin Park. I, <laughs> I, I, I feel very Wait, similar Wait, is,
2: is it the Jay-Z version or do
1: you do can, it without the I can rap? do
0: both. It depends what's on the machine.
1: Stunning. Love <laughs> it. I was cognizant of my lesbianism during this era of my life because I also was a little emo kid and I truly believe that one of my enlightening lesbian experiences was the music video for MCR's Helena the one where yes she's in ballet in a church absolutely and just the hottest thing in the world to like a little fucking 14 year old being like mm-hmm. oh my god she's so beautiful and these angsty boys are like doing the angsty singing thing at a funeral and she's just like do it, like on these incredible like red ballet shoes and mm-hmm. every girl that I knew was like where can I get this outfit mm-hmm. from? Like, And yes. I was like, where can I get this
2: girl? <laughs> where so, do I get this so girl deeply, from? Yeah. <laughs> Spoke deeply to me as a as a little angsty ballerina myself. I was a ballet dancer until my early 20s. So yeah, it was a, a lot of like, do I want to be here or do I want to kiss her? Yes, the answer. <laughs> it was yes. both, Taylor. It was both. Yes. But I think that the song to me, like this... When I first heard it, it was like one of the great turning points of my life, you know, going from childhood into my teenage years and sort of just throwing away my whole identity. I, you know, I talk about going to this summer camp and I had like a French manicure on my nails and then I cut them off and painted them black at camp and I came home and I was just like, this is the new me. But, you know, it was just sort of like adopting this new identity and it just sort of, i it it reminds me. You know, I, I think very fondly of this time where I just sort of said, you know, I can decide how I want to present in the world and, and who I want to be, even though I didn't really have language for what that meant. But it was sort of this first step in, in you know, taking some agency of over how I wanted to present myself in the world.
1: Amazing. Was there anything else you wanted to cover around this song or should we go on to your second choice?
2: Let's 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 uh, keep it rolling. I think these next two songs I want to talk about together because they're both important to me for similar reasons. List it. Yeah, so I have two songs from very different eras. One is You Don't Own Me by Leslie Gore, which came out, I want to say, in 1962 or 1964. Maybe I should have. It's 1963. Okay. Oh, right smack in the middle. Well, yeah, so You Don't Own Me came out in 1963. I think, made famous for our generation from the movie First Wives Club. 100%. That's Um, all I know it from.
0: (laughs) I thought that was... uh, For the longest time, I thought that was an original song from from the movie.
2: (laughs) Yes. Um, Incredible song. And then later, one that came out in, I want to say 2013, a song called Move by Tao and the get down, stay down. Much lesser known, but like one of my... Like, this is truly my Desert Island record, maybe. And both of these songs are women singing about rebelling and perhaps throwing off expectations that are placed on them by the outside world. In You Don't Own Me, it's very much, you know, the singer is speaking to a boyfriend, a man that she's involved with, and being like, you can't tell me how to behave. And then in Move, Tao is singing about this like experience of feeling like there's a line that it was like I had no center. I was just paper being moved. And it's sort of like, you know, I have been shuffled along through life being told what to do and I was doing it. And then there's a there's like a line that, you know, I I'm not a big tattoo words person, but I feel like there's a world where I get this tattooed on my body. There's a line that's like, I wreck no home, no home but my own to be free. And both of these songs were really important to me in my early 20s, around the age of 25 when I was coming out, because I had lived this life where, you know, I was raised Catholic in the Midwest, very sort of proper upbringing where, you know, I did everything I was supposed to do. I was presenting, I was chasing the right career, I was dating the right people, I was following all of these steps that were laid out to me as this is what a good life looks like and then when i was about 24 25 i blew it all up (laughs) you know i ended a really long-term relationship i moved across the country i changed careers and then changed careers again and i was just like having a really messy time so i was listening to these songs being like it's okay i'm fine everything's fine but i really identified with this feeling of like you know at some point you have to reject this, you know, pattern that's been laid out for you and figure out who you want to be. It wasn't until I did that, that I was like, oh, underneath all of the rubble of my life, there's some gay under there. And, you know, it was learning later that these artists were both queer women that I was like, oh, maybe they were speaking to an experience that I didn't even know I was having yet.
0: Where were you when you first discovered this song. What kind of like circumstances were you in? Did you already kind of like know Town The to Get Down Stay Down? What was the real yeah, like, journey I, to it?
2: So I used to go to like this this small venue in college near my, my campus and Tao came there and played a bunch of times, like really small shows, like I don't know, fifty people maybe. And then she released this album right when I was graduating. And there were some other songs on it that, you know, I was listening to first. It's like, you know, later in the album. And it was not until I had moved, you know, across the country the first time out of many um, that I started sort of really listening to it and like actually hearing the words. Mm -hmm. So it was it's it's on a playlist (laughs) that I like made. I was going back through that I made in 2015, 2016. That was just like my little comfort playlist for, you know, watching my life burn. <laughs> that I was just like, no, I'm I'm wrecking my life to be free. And that really sort of spoke to me as like, okay, you gotta get through this, but on the other side of it, I've gotta believe there's something better waiting.
0: Does this song provide that?
2: Do you think? I think so. It's been really interesting to listen to Tao's discography sort of develop. Mm. Because she wasn't, I don't think, publicly out at the time when she released this. It's only her most recent album that came out in 2020 that she actually speaks to, like, her experience in detail. She's got a song that she wrote for her wife on the end of the album. But the first song is about her relationship with her mother, who immigrated to the U.S. from Vietnam. And, like, doesn't like to talk about it because it was, like, a traumatic experience, right? And she tells this story. She's, like, told it on stage and stuff when I've seen her perform where, you know, she wasn't, like, explicitly out to her parents. But she also wasn't, you know, it was sort of, like, this unspoken understanding that she was clear. And then her mom was like, look, I understand giving up my whole life and giving up what I thought, you know, I wanted for freedom. And so, like, whatever you need to do to be free, do that. It makes me emotional. But, you know, that's also sort of like, I feel like an earlier part of that story, right? Before she was saying it explicitly, it was just sort of like, I understand that this path is not right for me. And I understand that I need freedom. And I'm not going to say why. Maybe I don't even know why. At the time, I didn't. But there's just this feeling that, like, what I'm doing doesn't fit. And I would, like, tear my own skin off to get out of here because it's just so like claustrophobic.
1: I feel like there's so many songs by queer artists, by artists who at the time were not out, and by straight artists where the language that they use, the metaphors that they're using, like the way they express things, feels so aligned with either queerness or queer history or queer like coding in different ways. The Mm -hmm. most obvious one, Take Me to Church, Could (laughs) one thousand percent have been like a queer reckoning song, right? Yeah, and it ended up being
0: the anthem for the for the yes for the same sex marriage vote in Ireland, right?
1: Yeah, it's like it's, and I feel like that's such an interesting thing where, like, within the lyrics of of move, you have these references to like to sin, to like Mm -hmm. conscience, to the idea of like finding home and like finding you finding your own freedom and that feels like if you'd have turned around to someone and been like there's this amazing queer song I've been listening to and played them that like immediately they'd be like oh my god this is so gay and I think that it's so I always find it so interesting like because for so long we didn't have explicit representation at all that there Mm -hmm. are so many things that we have like as a community have dug into and found our own community in and like figured out ways of like slipping in between the cracks and I guess similar to that sort of pop punk type genre or that kind of emo genre where it was like, okay, cool, we see a place where we can like use this as cover or we can use this in a way to explore stuff that wasn't necessarily intended by the original artist, but Mm -hmm. that still feels really something to connect to. And that you will, I think, especially when you go online now, this is something that previously we would be listening to on our little like mp3 players with three songs on them or your
0: ipod mini you know
1: LimeWire, the old pirate (laughs) bay and then nowadays it's much more of a we see everyone else listening to it we see we can see the people who are following the bands and the artists and the discussions about it and the comments underneath the music videos are you someone who's within any kind of music fandoms? Are there any kind of spaces in which you're looking at and seeing like community in the way that you're listening to this music or like going to live shows and feeling that community? Or is this something that you do much more on your own kind of listening to stuff privately and having
2: these feelings and thoughts about it on your own? I think a combination of both. I mean, I'm not as like deep into music fandom as I was in high school. The reason I picked a Fall Out Boy song to start with is because I was extremely active on the Fall Out Boy message board as a teen. And like the wildest thing is like there's there's people that I was like, you know, I would come home every day after school and I would post on these boards and nobody was like out. Right. But, you know, recently I was I was thinking about this and I went and looked some people up on social media and I was like, okay, that person's, you know, queer, that person's trans. This like we all we all found our way there. Right. So, I think, it, you know, there's a lot of that. I mean, as you mentioned, like, Hosier, there's, like, so many... I, I feel like the 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 predominant fandom of Hosier is lesbians. But... We created
1: like, him. We spawned him out yes. of the forest. Right? We I made mean, him from the moss and the earth, Chazza.
2: Listen. I believe it. It's, you know, as you said, like, take me to church. Like, as somebody who, who grew up with a heavy dose of Catholic guilt, wow, what a song. But I think... What happens to me now is that I'm less involved in like specific and intense fandoms and more just, you know, I do a lot of sort of general music content on, you know, my goth croissant channel in my in my YouTube community and stuff. And I make like monthly playlists and every so often I'll try to do a playlist of like all queer artists and I can't tell you how many artists I have called before they were out. That I would be like, oh, I should add that to the queer playlist. Are they actually, you know, out? And then I would look it up and they wouldn't be. And then two years later, they would. I'm wearing my Boy Genius shirt right now. I had a bunch of Lucy Dacus songs, queer playlists, like, years before she actually was out about her sexuality. <laughs> and I'm just like, I keep calling it because you just hear these, like, hallmarks and you're like, that's... I understand now in a way that I didn't in my teens, like, that's a very specifically queer song about not belonging or about yearning or about rebellion. It's not just those feelings, it's those feelings plus queer. So that's always a fun experience when I'm like, ha, called that, called that.
0: Hello friends, Jazza here for The Ad Read. As I'm sure you are well aware, we continue to be part of Multitude. And as such, we like to give a little shout-out to our podcasting siblings so that maybe you can go over and check them out. And one of our favourites is Exolore. Have you ever wondered what life would be like on a planet different from our own? Or how writers create your favourite fictional worlds? Well, wonder no more, because we have the facts for you. Every other week, astrophysicist slash folklorist Dr. Moya McTeer explores fictional worlds by building them with a panel of expert guests, interviewing professional world builders, or reviewing the merits of worlds that have already been built. You'll learn, you'll laugh, and you'll gain an appreciation for how special our planet really is. Subscribe today by searching Exolore in your podcast app or going to exolorepod.com. We are also continuing to be sponsored by... Wait for it... Squarespace. (laughs) who can help you buy a domain and create a website. We've been talking about how we love using Squarespace for our website creation, giving us access to analytics, the creation of email campaigns, and connecting all your social media presence in one place. It really is unparalleled. But particularly, the design features really do make everything more accessible. You don't need to know a stitch of coding, and you can get all your beautiful text and images aligned just so to bring you the sexiest damn website you've ever seen. We know you hear a lot of your favourite media offering their discount codes, but it would really help us out if you chose to use ours and support the Queer Movie Podcast. All you have to do is go to squarespace.com slash queermovie, all one word, lowercase, and when you're set up to make all your digital dreams come true, you can use the offer code Queer Movie to save 10 percentage points off your first purchase of a website or domain. Remember to go to squarespace.com slash queermovie. Please. Thank you. Now, back to the show.
1: I just wanted to quickly say at this point that the reason why we had Taylor on for this episode is because, you know, as someone who supports Taylor on Patreon, as a real fan, 10 out of 10 playlist, 10 out of 10 playlist abilities. Love it. I'm someone who's really bad. I I don't listen to. I don't have a favorite artist. I so many friends who are mega 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 fans of like one particular artist. I will listen to a song, be like, "That's amazing," add it to a playlist, and then never listen to any of the rest yeah, of the songs.
0: I have I have no idea what your music taste is, Rowan. Like at all,
1: I can show you my favorites list on YouTube Music. Because I okay, so the Patreon thing was thank like so I love much. to support Taylor, and then the YouTube music was I love to support Jazz's full. No, thank job. you so much.
0: Um, yeah, I get a every time one of my friends buys YouTube Premium, I I get a cut.
1: You just get a warm fuzzy feeling. Yeah, it's you actually, feel it yeah, inside it's your soul. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. can tell. You get a little shiver. <laughs> but it's it's very eclectic. It's a lot of musical theatre. Of course. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's does not surprise me that Taylor is. Uh, knows knows all about the music and also the fact that taylor only wears black benki is was on the fallout boy forums also does not oh. surprise me in the slightest <laughs> me email
0: no no, no <laughs> never. never couldn't be never. it
1: couldn't be surely not are you we talked we did like an episode previously because of the strikes around gaming and jazza kindly explained what games are to me but but also about the idea of the immediacy of a game and the emotions that can be drawn up from it that feel distinct to a movie even when you've got a game like The Last of Us which you could watch as a movie almost like you would just you could watch a playthrough and it would be like oh this is like a full storyline it beginning middle and end and obviously got made into a show but there was something really unique about the experience of the game that felt like you were involved in some way do you feel like with music which I guess is this like combination of poetry writing and this kind of quite like the the sound and music which is such a universal human thing to to do do you feel like listening to music or being at shows or how, there is something about it that feels particularly unique or particularly like
2: emotionally like hits you in a way yes and while you're saying that i was trying to look up this this quote i think that for a lot of people Music is like a really formative experience, right? Like I, I talked about a song that I listened to in high school and that, you know, a lot of us have music from our teen years and early 20s that's really like, like viscerally evokes emotion, right? Really remembers of us, reminds us of these times. And, you know, people have books and and movies and TV shows and, and other things that are important to them, Sure but I feel like music is, at least for me, has always had a a stronger connection to emotion. I was looking up this Fran Lebowitz said quote, this one that just came up is, musicians and cooks are responsible for the most pleasure in human life. Um, (laughs) I love that. But she talks about how music is like the only art form, right, where it's like you listen to it and you think about your own memories. You think about, you know, how it connects to your life it's not just an external story it's your story you know you think about certain songs as being written for you or about your life you don't go to a stadium and cheer with tens and thousands of people about a television show (laughs) so it's just you know i think that that for me music has just always been like a a more personal and more emotional art form that, you know, I have albums that define certain, you know, eras of my life in ways that other media don't. And so I just sort of identify with with it much more closely.
0: Before we go back to dive back into a a little bit more into You Don't owe Me, do you think of the state of music now in how TikTok forward it is in how people don't really write for albums very much anymore, at least the most commercial artists. A lot Mm -hmm. of the stuff is... I mean, we have the Eras tour and the Renaissance tours both being kind of like really seminal, like the the biggest blockbuster experiences that you can have as a music fan nowadays, but then still Mm -hmm. musicians struggling to get started without kind of like established platforms and not getting fairly arguably compensated by streaming platforms. Mm -hmm. What does this space, as somebody who thinks about it a lot more than we do, what do you, what's the state of the union, mate?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think there was a recent article, right, where a bunch of music execs were sort of lamenting, we don't have artists with star power anymore. We don't have, you know, we're not making new Taylor Swifts and new Beyonce's. Mm. And I think that that's a little bit sort of like the call is coming from inside the house, right? Like you're looking for something that already has, millions and millions of views or you're you're not developing audiences you're looking for ones that already have pre-built social media followings you're not willing to build the following as an industry because you want the instant return right you want to sell out a stadium you don't want to you know put somebody through you know small club tours and then you know release two or three albums before they catch on right you can't even get a, a, a label to you know work on two or three singles if the first one doesn't pop off right so like I think that it's just it's not a I don't think it's a problem with artists or musicians I think that there are still people who are really just kind of like fighting it out and making making beautiful art and writing full albums that are meant to be experienced as full albums and trying to get themselves out there but the thing that's happening with the music industry is the thing that's happening with everything right now is just like you know, capitalism will crush things into two extremes, right? You've got a couple of artists who can really sell out shows and can bring in a lot of streams and they're they're making a living and for everybody else it's just like they're all of the money has been pulled out, right? There's there's not a way to make a living off of selling records, right? So then it became touring and selling merch was the way to make a living. But you know, as you know, as COVID has made the the touring equation more difficult, as venues want a bigger slice of the pie, you know, venues will take a cut of the merch you sell. As Ticketmaster takes a bigger piece of the pie, it's harder and harder for people to make a living touring. So it's just really hard for artists to find a foothold now in the way that it's hard for anybody kind of on the on the up and up of their life to find a foothold. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's rough. It's rough, but I don't think that that means that the art is not being made. I think it's just that the machine that is is connecting us with artists is broken, and I think we've sort of let certain muscles of music discovery kind of atrophy, right? Like, I spent most of my teens and 20s making burning CDs for my friends Mm -hmm. and talking on these message boards about, Who's who are you listening to? What do you like? You know, reading reviews. There's no as somebody who does music journalism, there is no money in music journalism. (laughs) There's, you know, now it's just sort of like, what what will the algorithm serve me today? And so we I think, you know, as with any art form, uh, word of mouth matters more than we we give it credit for and like if you this is why I talk about Tao all the time because I'm like I don't understand why she's not the most famous person like Mm, she's mm -hmm. been my one of my favorite artists for coming up on a decade and I just keep waiting for her to break into this you know huge huge audience and every time I play somebody some of her music they're like this is so cool I've never heard this what is this and they love it and I'm like, I just need all I just need to, like, go to everybody's house and hand them a towel record. But but that's what it is. It's it's got to be word of mouth. We've got to, you know, like like everything in life, we've got to rely more on our communities. We've got to get back into practice of talking to each other and sharing with each other and relying on each other for our well-being economically, uh, you know, through housing crises, climate crises, and sort of the crisis of what's happening in the, the music industry and, and in the creative industry in general. You know, we see this happening in, in TV and film right now with these strikes is that there are strong unions that are going to fight for better protections for for people who make that kind of art. And we probably need the same thing in the music industry. I was just
1: thinking about the fact it's really interesting that the so I was thinking that if a TV show gets canceled, if then if the people at the top go, okay, one season done in the way that you were describing the idea of like, okay, one single then done if it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Those individual people who have worked on that piece of work can go and do another project. And it's right. not, it's, it's the mechanisms behind it are very different to someone who has been picked up by a record label or picked up by a producer in some way. And then after one EP, one album, one, whatever it is, one single dropped. They are the product in a way, like they're it's right. it's kind of continue to to do this thing in the background and hope it gets picked back up, like run that risk of someone looking at it and being like, "Oh, didn't you have that one hit wonder like so mm-hmm. long ago?"
2: Right, and but the contracts then you... are are yeah, you know, really exploited in that. I guess there's like the the famous case with the singer JoJo, but this happens to a lot of artists where it's like you may sign a deal with a record label that they own seven albums right but if after the second album they go yeah you're not really returning on the investment we're not going to pay for you to produce a third album we're not going to send you out on tour again you can't go and record an album somewhere else Mm. because they still own your right to record the next five and so you may just have to wait out that contract for you know 10 20 years until you can release music again on your own so
0: And who gains from that? It's that's so wild. Right. To it's me. just
2: sort of like this this expectation that you have to be instantly profitable and we're not gonna build you up in the way that in the you know, I I was listening recently to a podcast about Fleetwood Mac's rumors album, you know, arguably one of the greatest albums of all time. And that was after two or three albums that kind of flopped and then one that performed medium well but it was it only started picking up while they were already in the studio recording rumors right imagine not having Fleetwood Mac's rumors because the record label was just like your first two albums didn't sell well enough we're giving up on you like we don't give artists time to develop into the artistry like you mentioned Beyonce right she's been I mean she's been releasing incredible music for like 20 years but it keeps getting better Hmm. It keeps getting, she keeps developing this depth and this precision as an artist. And it just shows you how much giving somebody the time to really hone their craft makes a difference in their art. And if you expect that everybody be, you know, perfect from the first 15 second snippet of a song that they post on TikTok, you're not going to give them the ability to get there. Do you have a feeling about the state
1: of the situation for queer artists in particular because I just remember so vividly being a teenager and that just like queer songs just not being a thing and that Mm -hmm. if you wanted to do a song that was queer it was something that was never going to play on the radio it was like got released and maybe it had like a not quite semi-viral music video on YouTube that all of the gays passed around to each other and it but it wasn't necessarily I mean the closest that we had was that bloody tattoo song and which was not actually all... queer yeah exactly oh it was and that was like for shock value do you feel like there is a more of a space for queer artists at the moment are you kind of seeing it be like they're producing the music but they aren't getting the backing of the big funders like what's what's that situation like right now
2: I think that there's certainly more more choice that we have now than we grew up with I feel like there are definitely more queer artists there are more artists that can be open and out about their, their sexuality than there used to be. I get this sense that what is happening to a lot of queer artists, and this is not like data backed, it's just something that I'm observing, is that a lot of queer artists are being marketed, you know, not as a specific genre, but that the genre is queer. And so you'll get, you know, I am on press lists from, you know, certain, you know, music PR agencies and I'll get you know so-and-so is releasing a new single and you'll see these press releases that's like you know this queer artist is releasing a queer single for pride month listen to this queer song and there's nothing about their point of view or the you know their artistic process or what kind of music they're making or their skill as an artist it's just representation. And that's supposed to be all. That's supposed to be enough. And I think that that's something that I feel like a lot of people have said about, you know, about queer art, about Black art, about all sorts of, like, marginalized groups is, like, when we'll really have made it is when we don't, when there's enough queer art for us to not like some of it. (laughs) For us to not have to just be like, all right, well, this artist is queer. We've got to buy the record. We've got to support all of them because if we want it ever to be able to be made again. We have to, you know, show that there's a market for this. And so I, I see that happen. It's it's just, like, really disappointing to see incredible artists who are making really interesting work and the interviews that come out about them are just, and what is it like to be a queer musician? It's like, uh, I mean, like, yes, I'm, I'm so glad that they're able to do it, but please ask them about anything else.
0: So Taylor, you said that your last song was another one that kind of like evoked your kind of like ownership of yourself and kind of like being able to take back the reins of your life you don't own me by leslie gore yeah the only reason that i know about this song is because of the first wives club i genuinely Mm -hmm. thought this was a bet midler song How did you come to know it beyond that? Like, what was your interaction with this song?
2: Gosh, I don't even know how it sort of came back into my life outside of that movie. I think it was literally, it was making this playlist for like, I'm 25 Mm -hmm. and my life is a mess. And it just resonated with me, this sort of feeling of like, "Well, well, nobody owns me, you're not my real dad, I can do what I want. And it was only much, much later that I realized that Leslie Gore throughout her entire career was a closeted lesbian and came out in 2004 my take is that you don't own me is like the original anthem about compulsory heterosexuality because she's ostensibly singing to a man and telling that man you can't tell me what to do you can't tell me how to behave you can't treat me in a specific way but there's this kind of undercurrent now, knowing what I know now that I'm like, this is a, a woman in the 60s who's gotten this record deal to write, you know, some fun little love songs. And she's telling this man off in a way that I think is, is you can read it now as you can't tell me who I'm supposed to be attracted to, who I'm supposed to be in relationships with how I'm supposed to look right to other people in a way that I now like deeply identify with as, you know, even though I'm bi, even though I am, you know, attracted to the gender I'm supposed to be attracted to. For a long time, I thought that was evidence of my straightness in a way that now I understand, okay, that's one dimension of my sexuality, but there are many other dimensions. And this song to me is sort of like a, claiming of that (laughs) of that of a broader experience than just sort of the the compulsory heterosexuality that we're all raised to to sort of see ourselves in
0: i found your selections these three that we've talked about really really interesting because they are so different (laughs) like what speaks to you about these different genres because i like i'll be honest uh, like, Full Eyeball is, is my soul. Like, uh, like I mm-hmm. uh, that is that is my childhood. That is, that is everything. Something erupts out of me whenever I hear anything of that genre, of that period. Whereas in terms of kind of like composition, I don't necessarily... Like, I can appreciate these other two, but they don't really mm-hmm. kind of like speak to my soul as much. What speaks to you about the musicality of Tao and this Leslie Gore track?
2: I think that's something that I've always sought out in the music I listen to and I, I sort of have a broad palette but I've always been attracted to countercultural sound in whatever form it might take whether that's you know 70s punk or early 2000s emo or 80s hip-hop right I'm just always attracted to a some a sound that says I'm going to do things a different way that pushes a boundary in music that has existed before and something that i sort of realize now in hindsight is the reason that i was always attracted to countercultural sound is because i was part of a big counterculture you know as much as there's no monoculture anymore in terms of you know this is this is regular music and this is the weird music there's just you know this is mainstream film and this is experimental like there's not that clear divide anymore but I do think that like culturally you know to be queer is to be countercultural right now and so there's just sort of this undercurrent of pushing back against what I should be doing whether that's in my expression whether that's in the way I live my life whether that's in the way I construct a song that I'm drawn to that was
1: beautiful. This hour has flown by. <laughs> I realized that we're like at the end of the recording at this point. I didn't know if there was anything else, Taylor, that you wanted to talk about here at the end that you hadn't had a chance to say around
2: sort of queerness and music and the the music that was making you quit. I think so this has been really fun. I love when I I discover things in the course of a conversation that I'm like, oh, yes, I totally planned this. I had I had a coherent point the whole time. <laughs> you
0: you did. <laughs> Don't, well, don't I lift sort of, the veil it's all true
2: I I meandered my way into it one thing I did want to say and I don't know if I said it if if I did you can cut this but there's you know we talked about kind of the unspecified gender yearning in pop punk we talked about some of the themes of misogyny but there is one theme that I've always held so close to my heart in, in the emo pop punk genre which is the like When I make it out of this town Mm -hmm, song, mm
0: -hmm.
2: every band has one, which is like, you know, I live in this town and it sucks and nobody understands me. And one day I'm going to get out of this town and you and me, we're going to leave this town behind. And I used to love that. I used to write in my diary as a teen about how I was going to go to college and I was going to move away and I was going to go to a new place and I was going to be in the city and I was going to leave this town behind. And I think that there's something deeply queer about that. hundred percent. Like the experience of this, this place I've grown up is not big enough to contain all of who I am. And so I need to go somewhere that does, I think is a very queer experience. But I also think that like, just as I was saying that it's like a, you know, the genre gave us a cover for gender expression. It gave us cover to express feelings that we had that we couldn't name. Mm -hmm. And it's just sort of like, I got to get out of here. This, this town is too small to contain me don't know why it just doesn't fit I think it was a as a way for for us to express this need even though we didn't know where it was coming from and then you know we could look back and go oh it was it because was I wanted to be in a gayer
0: and get the hell and find community yeah. I think like I, I've yeah. talked about this with so many other people who've created stuff online a lot of that yearning mm-hmm. that running I don't think very often it's running from something, but also, also you're running to something. You're trying to find community. And these yeah. points of shared interest, be it like a... I mean, and I think music especially, because it comes packaged up with an aesthetic and a look and it's a cultural touch points and memes and references. It provided a culture for us to have, to be able to speak with and find new community, where maybe the mm-hmm. community that we happenstanced into by circumstance of our burr just didn't serve us enough. And so this was a vessel. It was the boat that took us out harbor. Metaphors. Metaphors. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Stunning. If people would like to see more of you and your stuff, Taylor, where can they do it?
2: Gosh, I'm on the internet in a lot of places. I have a sporadic music channel called Goth Croissant. I'm also a goth croissant on TikTok. I upload more regularly to a YouTube channel called It's Radish Time. But if all of that is just simply too much to remember, if you Google Taylor Benke, you'll find me. I'm out there. very SEO friendly.
1: Stunning. And we will leave the links in the description as well so people can just click. Don't even have to Google. Just find (laughs) you straight away. Love
2: it.
0: Amazing. Thanks, Taylor.
2: This has been a
1: delight.
0: That's it for another episode of the Queer Movie Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast so you are primed for our next one in your podcast app of choice. And if you like what you hear, consider supporting us over on Patreon where we have some fun perks to offer, including monthly queer movie watch-alongs on our Discord.
1: You can also follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram for behind-the-scenes content as on Jazza And I remember to do so. <laughs>
0: We continue to be a part of Multitude Productions. Find out more about that podcasting collective who make lovely stuff for your ears at multitude.productions. Thank you very much my diary lens. Bye. Toodaloo.